Welcome back to the Wordsmith Podcast. I'm Josh Bennett, the lead pastor here at Awaken Church. Got with me Connor Hawk. Yo, yo, yo. Executive Pastor Shane Suggs. Go dogs. And our worship pastor, Matthew Grady Calhoun. Hey. Back for another week walking through the book of Philippians. Uh, I chose this week not to bring a beverage with me. Last week I had coffee and I spilled it all over the floor during our podcast. So um, I decided to kind of steer away from that. You guys got any drinks with you? I got uh, some I cold not. coffee myself. My sweet but tea. I got a question about drinks. I noticed this. Whenever we were traveling, like we went up to see the girls a few weeks ago at school, and I've noticed like certain areas that you travel to, it's like every restaurant you go to, uh, like there, it was all Pepsi. Like everybody had Pepsi products. But then um, certain areas you go to, like maybe here in South Georgia, like everybody has Coke and you barely find a Pepsi product in in, uh, in a restaurant. And so I'm wondering, like, just some, I don't know if that's just because they got better salesmen in some area or if people in that area just tend to like one brand over the other. Well, I mean, I was always curious about that because Georgia is prominently a Coke state. I mean, you've got Coke headquarters in Atlanta, and yeah. so they're driven primarily through this area. So you still have your national franchises that either are owned by Pepsi or have affiliation with Pepsi. So, like Taco Bell, Pizza Hut. Um, Long John Silver's, I believe. Yeah. All three of those are owned by Pepsi, so you're never going to see a Coke product in one of those. Right. Um, and then you got some that that's just what they use. Interestingly enough, though, one of our local restaurants here uses Pepsi, and I always wonder why. Hagen Bones. Because hmm. hmm. I mean, I'm a Coke fan. You prefer I normally Pepsi get tea or Coke? when I go by Hagen Bones, so I don't. I never notice like the soft yeah. drinks they have. You prefer Pepsi or Coke? I prefer Coke. Um, well, not Dr. Pepper, so that's why I love Chick-fil-A because they're one of the only like chain restaurants that I can go to that have, you know, not Dr. Pepper um, like stock. Yeah, I think it's still largely, as Josh was talking about, a holdover. It, the country used to really be divided regionally by these sodas or whatever. So obviously Georgia is Coke dominant. Uh, North Carolina, and this probably bleeds over into Tennessee, is what you were noticing, North Carolina used to be heavily dominated by Pepsi, still to this day or whatever. A good friend of mine in college used to always, we would go back and forth about which was better, Coke or Pepsi. Explains why Bojangles has Pepsi, too. Exactly. Uh, And, of course, that's a ridiculous conversation because it's clearly Coke. And then I ministered in the great state, uh, excuse me, the great independent and sovereign nation of Texas. And in Texas, they're crazy about Dr. Pepper. That that is the drink. Hmm. If you're getting a Texas meal, you're going to Whataburger, and you are getting a Dr. Pepper with it. They almost sometimes they don't ask; they just give you a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> wow, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Well, I'll throw another little wrinkle in that. When we were in Arizona, it was RC Cola. Really? I, like you would not go to a restaurant here that has RC and Diet RC, like. Yeah. As your, but there, almost every other restaurant we went to had <laughs> RC or Diet huh, very RC. Interesting, man. Yeah, and I mentioned to you guys early. Like, uh, I don't know how many of our listeners remember, but um, in high school. The big thing, at least for about a month, was Pepsi Clear. And uh, that was like the drink, and I don't know why. And the only reason I even remember Pepsi Clear, because it wasn't around very long. Um, But the only reason I remember it is because in their commercials, the the, uh, band that played, the song that played, uh, was Right Now by Van Halen. And that's the only reason I even remember Pepsi Clear. I I tried it one time. I I thought it was nasty. I, I didn't like it at all. But that was kind of the drink that, and um, I think Josh mentioned Surge. Yeah, Surge just, was big when surge I was in was high school. Man, just kind of we had a, a Surge machine, like you know the drink machines. That's back when you could have soda machines mm-hmm. in your 
school. Oh, so wow. We had a Surge and Gatorade side by side. Yeah. Really? Connor, do you remember either Pepsi Clear or Surge? No, I do not. I was just I've say, never no heard way. of Pepsi yeah. Clear before. And if you're younger than me, there's no way you remember <laughs> yeah, Pepsi I do Clear. Not remember that Surge no is back, though, right? I, I've never has, even yeah. seen that. And before. then they had the – remember the new Coke where they tried to change the Coke formula? They had <gasps> new Coke, and then they everybody hated it after a while, and then – um, they kind of went back to the uh, Coke classic, you know, that we're going back to the old uh, recipe. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know if y'all remember, but whenever new Coke came out, the spokesman for that was Max Hedrum. Y'all remember? He was like, uh-uh. he was an animated personality, but his whole, uh, the thought behind Max Hedrum was that he was, he was always on a computer screen and he was like 10 minutes in the future or something like that, or 30 minutes in the future. He lived like that far in the future. And he's the one who used to, he's the one that started advertising the new Coke. And that was like their big advertising Mm -hmm. campaign. I think I might've been what, like 11th grade or something like that. Whenever um, new Coke was a thing, but uh, again, didn't like that either. I was always like, I, I stayed with like the staples, like, I would drink a Pepsi. I prefer Coke. Sure. And then uh, because I've aged, I guess, I don't know, like I drink more diet drinks now. And so now it's like mm-hmm. Diet Coke or Diet Dr. Pepper. Um, I can't – I don't really like Coke or Pepsi like the – Oh, the, the originals. Yeah. yeah. Too, way too sweet. I know some of our listeners uh, like conspiracy theories. There is still to this day a lot of people who believe that new Coke was intentionally launched to drive the sales of Coke down. And then when they brought classic Coke back, the drive sales back up. Because huh. if you look at the records, sales of Coke skyrocketed after they brought back classic Coke. Huh. And a lot of people still believe that Coke did that intentionally. Okay, now I'm going to have to dig into that. Yeah. Huh. Connor, what's your beverage of choice? I like cheer wine. Cheer wine. I mean, yes. I, I expected either sweet tea or coffee, so I'm really I mean, I, I like sweet tea as well as mm-hmm. much as cheer wine, but cheer wine yeah. is the choice of beverage. Well, I'm ready to get you some hate mail, so why don't you tell us what you said about sweet tea before we started the so, podcast here. So, back where I'm from, you know, sweet tea is served everywhere, and it's served in colleges, and sure. it's a, you know, classic beverage up there. But I come down here to South Georgia, and I drink sweet tea at a restaurant, and it's not good. Mm. You know, and I'm... I guess a stereotypical guy thinking, oh, South Georgia, good sweet tea. Wrong. And I go to school here at ABAC. They don't even serve sweet tea in the dining hall. So let's just be clear. Let's just, we're going to clear it out. So you're saying sweet tea is better in North Georgia than it is in South Georgia. That's what you're... I'm going to clarify what I said. Yes, I do believe that. All right, listeners, we want to hear your yeah. input on that. Send us some messages. Boy Hawk. That was Connor Don't Hawk. send me yeah. hate messages Boy on Hawk Instagram. one 2 3 at gmail.com. Uh, let him know what you think about his... You know what's going to happen now? Everybody in the church is going to make you a picture of their sweet tea. Yeah, because you just haven't tried the right one yet. That's right. Oh, I, I could not believe that you actually made that statement. So, All right, let's pivot into the text for today. We're going to continue um, and finish out chapter 2 of Philippians. Pastor Shane, would you go ahead and read that passage for us? Yeah, it, says, it starts out in verse 19 is where we're picking up at. It says, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For have no one else like-minded who would genuinely care about your interest. All seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I consider it necessary to send you Epaphroditus 
my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again. When you see him, I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Here we run into a different type of text in the book of Philippians. Uh, Paul has been laying out some great teachings, some great encouragement. Uh, he gives us this great example of Christ and humility. Then he takes some time to make it feel more like a letter almost, where he, he mentions the fact that he wants to send Timothy to him. He mentions the fact that he sent an Ephroditus to him. And so we get into a passage that, uh, Pastor Shane, you really mentioned this this past week in your sermon, that there are some parts of Scripture that are prescriptive. So, a clear example, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Right. That's very prescriptive. You should do this. Then we get to these verses, and these are descriptive texts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you're reading the Bible and you're saying about how do you kind of decipher descriptive versus prescriptive text? Well, I think there's, there's obvious ways to do it. If it says do this or don't do this, as in sort of a command, then you know those are definitely prescriptive. Like you ought to do this or you ought not to do this. And then some are, are also obvious on the descriptive. Like if you read the, the um, prophets maybe in the Old Testament, for example, uh, many of them may say, you know, this prophet prophesied during the reign of this king in this year in this area. And then it would tell a little bit about him and his family and, and his upbringing sometimes. Those are descriptive. They're trying to get you to know the the character in the narrative so that you understand them better. So it's not necessarily you can't build doctrine or a teaching off of those or you shouldn't. And there's some where it's uh, maybe a little harder to kind of get that because there's some where you just have in the context, you understand like when I was preaching last week in the context is saying the church is supposed to be like this and, and always should be like this. And then um, the the remaining verses that, that I preached on was, this is what it looked like for us. So you have to understand, sometimes it's just in context that you draw those outward. I mean, there, there's a little bit in in the passage that I, I just read. You know, it, it talks about Epaphroditus. It talks a little bit about, you know, he was he's my brother and, he, you know, he's a soldier. And you could you can understand some of those as as prescriptive, you know, as, you know, helping a brother in need and and being um, a servant and and those sort of things. So those would be prescriptive traits, though I don't think you should preach it from this text because there's many other texts that you could preach that say you should be a server. So I don't think you should preach from this, though you may could. Well, I mean, I think if you're dealing with this text, you have to deal with those issues. Sure. So if you're preaching this text, it's appropriate to say, here's the things in Timothy's life, and this is much of what we're going to do today. Here's these characteristics in Timothy's life that are godly, admirable and things that we should strive for but if they're not godly and admirable and we should strive for them because they were in timothy's life sure they're godly honorable and things we should strive for because that's what scripture calls us to in other places you know because we could look at david and say well if our goal is just to be like david then we go have an affair 
you know. Right. Sure. But we're able to identify the things if Paul mentions these things as admirable in the life of a believer, then I think in that way it, it becomes sort of prescriptive in saying, hey, you, you should do these things. Sure. It, and it, even as Paul says later on, follow me as I follow Christ. You're right. It, it does become prescriptive, but it's not explicitly prescriptive. It's more implicit. You kind of It's kind of implied there that mm-hmm. these are... And, and so I, I, here's what I think. I think if you're going to preach on these, you have to draw other verses in to kind of build a foundation why these characteristics are to be sought after, you know, for a Christ follower. Yeah, a lot of supportive text. Right. I think there's something to be said about the fact that although descriptive passages do not carry the weight and the authority that commands do, there's still a lot of richness and still a lot of depth and value to be found in a lot of these passages as we're about to start digging through these verses. I mean, nothing from this particular passage you could pull and say and make it a command, but there's other passages where uh, people would take them, and even though they're descriptive in nature, saying, well, then we have to now do that. Uh, We now have to act in this way or do it just like they did it. I'm thinking particularly of um, women wearing hats in church. Some people would argue that that is a prescriptive passage, whereas most Christians and, and most Protestants especially would argue, well, no, that's just descriptive. And there's arguments back and forth, and we're not going to dive into that particular passage. But just because something is descriptive doesn't mean that we can just ignore it or we should just pass over it. Often those passages really do have some great things to meditate on and try to see and some fruit that hopefully the Holy Spirit will produce in our own lives, that we can be like Timothy. We can be like Epaphroditus. There are two dangers here. The first danger is to look at them equally and say, well, I take a descriptive text and treat it as a prescriptive text. The other danger is to go, well, I'm just reading descriptive text for information. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is exactly what you're saying. The, the core is anytime I'm reading scripture and I'm diving in, there's something to learn from it. There's something to gain from it. There is something that ties into the meta narrative of scripture, this story of the gospel and the beauty of the cross and get the Holy Spirit guides us in that reading. So even if I'm reading prescriptive or descriptive, there are things I'm reading that can help me grow in my relationship with Christ. Uh, we all knew coming into this text that it would be a little more challenging. In fact, when I laid out the entire podcast, I put biggest challenge next to these verses because it is a descriptive text. But I'm excited to kind of dig into it and see where we get. So Paul here addresses, first of all, this call to Timothy. He's going to send Timothy at the right time. What do we really learn here about Paul and his relationship with Timothy and Timothy's character and all of those things. We see through Scripture that Timothy was probably no older than, you know, early in his teens and 20s uh, when, he, when he joined Paul. And we see that through Timothy, he actually is living, lived with his uh, mother and grandmother. And we see that through 2 Timothy verses 1 through 5. We also see in Scripture that Timothy later on was the pastor in Ephesus. You know, he was with Paul when he wrote several New Testament letters, you know, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and also Philemon. Timothy was certainly a part of Paul's ministry. Uh, they had a deep relationship. As Connor just said, he was a part of writing all these letters. He was also uh, what you could kind of call Paul's troubleshooter in many cases. He went to Corinth to settle issues, Thessalonica, Ephesus. Philippi, Um, but he was somebody that Paul really loved. He mentored, had a great relationship. Here's some things that he called him 
First Timothy chapter one, verse two, he calls him my true child in the faith. Second Timothy one, two, he says, my beloved son. First uh, Corinthians four, 17, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Uh, Romans 16, 21, my fellow worker. Second Corinthians one, our brother. So you can get a sense from the wording and the way that Paul describes Timothy. He was kind of like a spiritual father to him. Yeah, uh, He was a mentor to him. He was somebody that he poured into. And, and obviously, even from this text, somebody that he really valued. He was a pastoral protege, you know, in other words. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I think his mother and grandmother don't get enough credit sometimes because sure. uh, they did a really good job raising him. I mean, mm-hmm. everything about him is just impeccable just about in, in Scripture. I mean, there's very few people— this mentioned in scripture that you don't read anything, you know, bad about, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he is definitely one of them. Like he, he just, they did a good job raising him. They taught him the scriptures from an early age. I think they, they get more credit. Maybe then sometimes it's more than maybe pastors sometimes give them because I mean, they did, they did a great job in raising him in the scriptures in having the mind of Christ. Something else that gives us a lot of insight into this relationship is what we know as the pastoral epistles. So you have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and those are called the pastoral epistles because basically those are the letters, the epistles that teach you how to be a pastor for the most part. And First and 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, kind of sharing his, his passion, sharing his concerns, sharing his instruction, um, especially 2 Timothy. It's towards the end of Paul's life. He knew that um, he was going to be executed shortly, and so he's just kind of giving him those last words. And so that begins to show us this relationship that Paul wanted to see his ministry continue through Timothy. You know, one thing I've always found interesting in that, Josh, is in one of the pastoral epistles, I think it's First Timothy, whenever he's talking to Timothy, and he says, you know, all the hardships that I endured, and he starts naming all these cities where he endured hardships, he said, you're very, so apparently Timothy was with him through many of those hardships. He says, you know very well all these hardships. And then he goes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, you know, will suffer hardships. And here's, here's what I've always thought. If you're trying to train somebody to be into the ministry, to go into the ministry, that's not a good selling point. Like, hey, you know, you've seen me, it's been you know, I've had a lot of hardships. I've had a lot of persecution. I've been put in prison. You know, I've been beat up. You know, I've been called names. I've been ran out of town. Like, the same's going to happen to you. Don't you want to join? And like, if if that was the case, I think today in in maybe um, pastoral mentorship, we'd probably have a lot fewer pastors if they, if they thought, hey, when I go into this, it's going to be hard. And there's a lot about pastoring that is hard, but from my experience, it's been a joy. It's, it's been good, but I don't think we should, you know, you should go into it thinking, man, you know, I'm going to influence a lot of great people. You know, I'm, I'm going to just really uh, set the world on fire. Like, I'm going to do great things. Uh, and spiritually speaking, Paul did do great things, but like he wasn't always in great health. He didn't always have a lot of money. I mean, as a matter of fact, while um, when whenever he was writing this, I mean, they were they took up an offering to bring to him to supply some of his needs. So he kind of um, he wasn't making money really as mm-hmm. a pastor. And so I, I think that's always just always stood out to me in, in the pastoral epistles, especially with Paul and Timothy's relationship. Yeah, everybody wants to preach and teach like Paul, but no one wants to walk quite like Paul walked through the world. That's right. And one of the crazy things about him, he was shipwrecked on multiple occasions. 
That's wild to me. Uh, it's hard enough to be shipwrecked, period. He, it happened to him multiple times. And he hated water in the boat. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like your worst nightmare. Here, let's do it a few times. Really diving into this, what are the things we see about Timothy in this passage that we go, okay, these are those admirable traits that are describing who Timothy are is, but also shows us, hey, these are some things we should strive for as well. What are the things Paul really highlights? Well, he had a genuine genuine concern for other yeah. people's welfare. And he was speaking specifically to the church of Philippi. He said, look, he has a genuine concern for your welfare. That's an admirable trait. I mean, it's just, and I think it's admirable because you just don't see it that often. Yeah. And it was a self-sacrificing genuine concern. And, and it's not it's not that we don't see it very often today. Paul even insinuated he didn't see it very often in their culture. He said, because everybody just looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. And so that was something that they, you know, they dealt with then and what you still kind of deal with now. Well, I even wonder, as I was reading this, you wonder sometimes it's like Paul's writing, why transition? Like, why shift? Why do these things? And so I'm reading this about Timothy, and I can't help but reflect back on what he just said, that we're to have humility and that we're to sacrifice and we're to be humble servants and we're to do things without disputing and grumbling and all those things we talked about last week. And then it almost seems like those traits reminded him of Timothy, you know, because he goes right in and start talking about Timothy and the description of Timothy matches what he just called us to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a huge part of it, his humility and willingness to serve. And and one of the parts that kind of stands out to me when it says, for I have no one like him, you know, who generally concerned for your welfare because everybody seeks their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. It's almost as if he's equating the, the welfare of the church to that of Christ. Is, is that, am I reading it right? Because, I mean, those two verses are kind of together, and he's, it's on the same thought. I believe the call of Scripture for us is to be humble, and what to follow after Christ means that we seek the interest of others. I mean, that's what Paul's already laid out for. And so I think that's the connection, is that Timothy, his desire for them and their interests and their well-being is reflective of the fact that he desires Christ's interest as well. Because Christ's interest is for us to be humble and to seek others' well-being. Paul's laid that out in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. He deals with Timothy's faithfulness here in these passages, specifically there in verse 22, that he's a faithful to his father in the faith, which was Paul, and he's also faithful to the ministry. In verse 22, whenever he's talking about you know Timothy's proven worth, it's like he's saying that Timothy is invaluable to the ministry. Like to my ministry, Timothy has been indispensable and valuable. It's a proven worth. And this also goes back to, in his letter to Timothy, one of the requirements for elders, or, or what we, we we would normally call pastors, he talks about the idea that they have a good reputation with outsiders. He says here, but you know his proven character. Timothy, during uh, both before he was traveling with Paul and during his travels with Paul and during his being sent out by Paul, he has time and time again proven his character. It's an important requirement for those who, uh, those who are going to serve the church and those who are going to be sent out by the church. We don't, we don't just pick random people. We don't pick fresh up new believers. We send people who have proven themselves over time. I think, especially if you grew up in small Baptist churches, when you have a young man or a young woman who is maturing in their faith, it's so easy for us to kind of push them deeper and, and, and push on them commitments that they're not quite ready for yet. It's yeah. a slow thing. We're all slowly being sanctified. We're slowly becoming more like Christ. And sometimes we get scared 
and we think we've got to push this young person. They got to serve the Lord now. They got to give themselves fully now, 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 always now, 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 now. Yeah. And I think sometimes we push people too soon and we're doing it out of fear. We think we're doing it out of love, but we're really doing it out of fear. And one of the examples I always point to is Paul. Paul is uh, miraculously converted. He meets, he talks with the apostles. And then what does Paul do? He goes home and conservative estimates suggest he spends 10 years making tents. 10 years ministering to his own family before he actually goes and starts traveling with Barnabas. 10 years. He had that time to prove himself by his character. We don't just pressure people. The, the Lord's mission and the church is going to continue. That's why Paul can say in 24, I have no one else like-minded who generally care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. The interests of the church in Philippi and the interests of Jesus Christ overlap because the church will endure. Christ will not forsake his church. He won't forsake any of his churches. So basically, they have at this point, they have history together. I mean, how long have they been traveling together at this point? Do we know? I don't have it in my particular study. I don't either. But at this time, you'd have to assume years. Yeah, oh, because absolutely. I mean, to, to, for Paul to use, and I think those are weighty words, proven mm-hmm. worth. Like there's there's a lot of history there, although we don't know how much, but I, I would assume it it has to be in, in the years, not the you know weeks or months. Oh yeah, or certainly years. Like that. Sure. And I think the other nature of this was that his character had been proving through trials and testing and mm-hmm. difficult times, mm-hmm. and it, it, obviously there was enough testing that Paul was confident in vouching for him um, in their years of ministry together. Then Paul leads into, therefore I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And uh, later on in the book, he actually uses the word immediately. His thought is here that this is going to happen quickly. Paul's confident, and, and here's what we see why. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will be coming soon. And so Paul's waiting to find out what his sentence is, whether he's going to be released, executed, locked up for a longer period of time or whatever. And he seems to be pretty confident that he's going to be able to come soon and that he's wanting to send Timothy um, even sooner than that to go and to share in the ministry with him. And perhaps he says that for their confidence. Like maybe he wasn't saying, I mean, he's saying, I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But he's, he's probably saying that for their confidence. Because they're obviously, as we've already established, they're worried about him. They're worried about his imprisonment and what's going to come of it. And he's trying to remind them, like, don't lose hope. Things are okay. The Lord's got me in his hands. All right, with that thought, we'll take a break and be right back. for our cultural deep dive and this week we're going to be diving into mentorships and discipleship uh, specifically because here we've got two relationships Paul's relationship with Timothy in a minute we're going to talk about Paul's relationship with Ephroditus and so we thought what a great week to talk about the importance of mentors and even sharing about some of the mentors we've had in our lives. I think sometimes maybe it's hard to nail down. I mean, not nail down like who's the most influential, you know, mentor. 
because I've never, I mean, I think we've all had mentors and people who've discipled us, even though all of it wasn't necessarily formal, you know, like, like, hey, like maybe Paul and Timothy's were more structured, like, hey, I'm training you to go into the ministry. That was more of a formal, more of a structured apprenticeship and mentorship. But I mean, I've been, I've been mentored by many different um, older men. Um, my, my pastor growing up, uh, Willie Martin, I mean, he definitely taught me how to preach. And the crazy thing about it is we call him Brother Willie at the church. And he always found something good to say about my messages afterwards. Like, and, and I've went back because they used to record them, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, a lot of times it was really like I couldn't find anything positive to say about my messages. And I'm like, he always encouraged me to do better and to yeah. be any, you know, he'd pose questions sometimes and, and, and really push me to try to be a better preacher. And, and then another pastor that was in our association, um, Danny Riles, I didn't get to hear him preach a lot. I've heard him preach a, a lot of times, but not as much as my home pastor, but he, he taught me a lot about what it meant to pastor because he just genuinely loved people. He loved being around people. He was very extroverted. And so I think those two men probably influenced me the most. But, I mean, I've had deacons in my church. Uh, uh, Lee Evans, uh, he, he's been a, a mentor to me. I call him every time I have a problem, if it's financial or family, because he's modeled in front of me, though we haven't had a lot of, like, those deep, long theological conversations like I have with the other guys, he's modeled in front of me like what it means to be a good husband and good father and good friend. And so just those that experience of being around him, I, I think, disciple me in those areas. What about y'all? When I started first following Jesus and I had my youth pastor, you know, pour into my life, you know, and taught me how to read scripture and really know who Jesus was. But it wasn't until I really got serious with my faith and uh, a lady named Megan Sorrow. She leads uh, our Christian Learning Center in Loganville. And the class is mainly you come in and she breaks down Scripture and she helps you understand Scripture even more to the like more level of where you need to be. And so that really helped me in how to understand Scripture. And then it wasn't until I came here to ABAC. You know, I've never had a person really disciple me and really lean me more to Jesus and tell me, you know, how to be a good dad one day, you know, and how to be a better follower of Jesus. And it wasn't until I actually met Josh, you know, last year. I was searching for a church here in Tifton. I I go here to ABAC, and I was just having a hard time finding a church. And I finally found Awaken. Um, I came here, and it was such an awesome experience that morning. I remember the morning y'all played Simple Gospel, and I was just like, yes, this is home. And then I met Josh and that morning, actually, he told a story about how he got his side-by-side stuck in the mud somewhere on someone else's property. And I was like, this guy. Hold on. you got to be more specific because that has happened a lot <laughs> over the years. We're not going to be specific about whose property it was. <laughs> okay, keep going. Sorry. No, it's, it's fine. But, yeah, so he, he was telling the story, and I was sitting there, and I was like, yes, this is the guy. Like, this. I wasn't solely just coming because of the preacher. No, it's just it's like this guy I feel like I could be good friends with. And so later on, I talked to him after service, and we were getting coffee, and we got coffee, and it was just a such a great time just talking and, you know, telling him, um, just telling him about my life and telling him what I was pursuing at ABAC. And so that relationship just developed to continue on, and uh, he invited me to come to youth, and I just, you know, started serving at youth, and uh, we started hunting more together, and 
him he was just you know pouring into me so but yeah so josh is a big you know mentor in my life still to this day and now on staff and same to you shane and same to matt over there as well and for the most part we like having you around most of the time yeah when you do stuff and don't eat people's pizza Yeah, for me, I think me and Shane are, are quite similar in that we went to churches where formal mentorships didn't really happen a whole lot. It was quite irregular and didn't happen often. Uh, but growing up, obviously, I had several pastors, uh, Brother Kent Barwick of being most especially, who still is serving in my home church there in Colquitt, uh, who was very kind and patient with me. I am a very quiet, keep-to-myself person, and I'm also very difficult and stubborn um, thank you guys amen. for not. Oh, see, there you go. Amen. I was going to compliment you on that. I was waiting for this. I had to aim in that. I'm definitely not an easy person to mentor. So the two people who I wanted to mention found creative ways to work around that. One first was my good friend John Collier. Uh, when I was in Texas, I lived there for five years, and John called me after I'd been there a couple weeks. He just knew there was a new pastor in town, and he just wanted to have lunch with me. So we went and had lunch, and for the next five years, we had lunch almost every week. And the way he approached mentoring me, I think, was a very wise way. If he had called it a mentorship and he had been real formal about it, I would have pressed against it because I, I, I would have been arrogant and be like, I don't need a mentor. But he actually approached it more as a friendship. And that really kind of helped me um, listen to him. And we, first and foremost, we are still, even to this day, good friends. And it's through that friendship it's through that kindness. It's not trying to lord over me, not trying to poke and prod me too much. It, it was through that patient kind of approach of mentoring me that he really did. And the other person I want to mention is my favorite free will Baptist pastor in the whole world, and I guess it's a bad idea to just pick one out, but he, he's the one I'm going to pick, is actually John's father, Warner Collier. I have uh, the utmost respect for him. Mr. Warner got saved as an adult and then was called into the ministry. And then for the rest of his life, even up still to this day, he has committed himself not only to serving churches, but serving difficult churches. Churches that are not in good situations, that don't have a lot of people, don't have a lot of money. He has looked at those churches and he said, that is still the bride of Christ. And I'm going to serve them and I'm going to do what I have to. To this day, he still drives about four hours uh, one way just to preach at a church, and then he'll drive the other four hours to go back. And I love that commitment, and I want to be more like that. I want to be somebody who's so committed to serving the church that I will serve like he has over the years. So I, I, I just want to take an opportunity to shout both John Collier and Warner Collier out for their uh, commitment to the gospel, to the church of Jesus Christ, and for their friendship and their mentorships to me. You guys both mentioned... Like your decide or mentors being informal is if almost that's unusual, but I don't. I believe that that's how mentorships and discipleships mainly take place. And uh, I even think I was thinking of this as you were talking, Shane. I'm not so sure this relationship between Paul and Timothy didn't feel a little more informal than we realize. It's easy for us to read it as a formal. I'm training you to be a pastor, but I think like these letters that he writes to Timothy is born out of years of informal friendship and mentorship awesome. and sure. time shared together. Sure. So I, I think almost if it's formal. It, it seems almost too forced. I think informal mentorship and discipleship is true. And I know from my life, I'm going to highlight three, but and there's so many people um, that have poured into me and shared with me. But the first person that mentored me was actually a classmate of mine in high school. Uh, his name is BJ Singletary. Uh, BJ came to school every day, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and shared with me who Jesus was. I had no clue, was not interested, ridiculed, I guess you could loosely use the word persecuted, uh, but every single day he was faithful to share who Jesus was and that he loved me and 
all those things, and, and as well as my other classmates. And then when I gave my life to Christ, 14, it was BJ that taught me how to read the Bible. It was him that taught me what Jesus looked like and, and how to follow him, and church attendance was important, and all these different things that now just seem so fundamental to who I am as a believer. I learned from another 14-year-old boy who just loved Jesus, and, and he had um, learned it. And so BJ is definitely one of those. Another one is Jeff Goodman. Uh, we spent 17 years doing ministry together, planted a church together, worked on staff together, and very informally, but he showed me what relationships were about in ministry. And so he showed me what it means to love God and to love other people and how important that is. And um, just deeply through the through the years of experience, and it was never like, hey, Josh, let me show you how to love people. It was just the fact that he did love people mm-hmm. and how he responded and how he reacted and all those things. And then maybe the most formal of my mentors is Billy Hanna. He pastored um, the First Real Baptist Church there in Albany. I did my internship with him. And I could probably write a book of stuff I've quoted Billy over about over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, he taught me so many things. But when I did my internship with him, we would come into the office and we'd work every morning. And then we'd go eat lunch. And then for the rest of the day, we would drive around in his car. And it didn't feel a whole lot like learning at the time. It felt like I was riding around with an older guy talking about nothing. Killing time. But the things that were said in that car... In those afternoons are the things I quote now. They're the lessons I learned. It wasn't the stuff that happened in the office. And uh, he just poured into me so many times. Like, I could give you an example. One day we went to these guys, they owned a business in the church, and we went and man, they just were funny and they joked around. We didn't talk anything about ministry. We, we just had a good time. We laughed. So we get back in the car and we start driving. And he said, Did you learn anything today? kind of paused for a minute and I thought, well, Brother Billy, I learned a lot of stuff, but none of it was about ministry. <laughs> and he said, well, what you learned is every pastor needs a place to go where when ministry is heavy, you can take your care off and you can just laugh and be a friend and have a friend. And everybody needs one of those places. Again, just it didn't seem at the time it was kind of like, oh, okay, but having been neck deep in ministry now for the last you know, 15, 20 years, I mean, it, it makes a whole lot of sense. I want to ask this, and I actually want to ask it earlier, Shane, when you were talking about Timothy but and about how Paul was kind of warning him about how difficult ministry was, but I was kind of trying to save it for this segment. Did your mentors, I mean, we're all here in ministry now. Did the people that have mentored you and poured into your life warn you about how difficult ministry is? Yeah, they, they warned me that it could be, and they would tell me stories, and 10, 15 years removed, it's a funny story. But when you're living through some of those stories, it's, it's, they're heartbreaking, you know, and they're hard. It's a hardship. So, yeah, I mean, um, they, they did tell me and, you know, they it, and it wasn't more like a warning, but it's just especially like with Danny, because he loved people and he loved difficult people even, you know. Hmm. And so he would he would talk to me about difficult people, but he was talking about it in such a way to love difficult people, not to not to avoid difficult people or how to get around difficult people or, or anything like that. It was more about how to love difficult people. But it was kind of like you, Josh, at, at the time, I didn't think about it. But but as I've been in ministry uh, several years now, um, there have been difficult people. And, I, you know, I go back to some of those lessons that I've, I've seen lived out in, in front of me and taught to me on a very personal level. But, yeah, they, I mean, they taught me about 
difficult situations, you know, things like that, that, that you're just going to face in the ministry because, uh, it, I mean, it can be, it can be a difficult time, but there's, even in difficulty, man, there's joy and there's, there's good things and good people. This one time, my youth pastor, we went to go get lunch one day and, uh, you could tell something was bothering him. And he showed me this list of all the things he had to get done. And he warned me, he said, Connor, as you take this road into ministry, as you pursue that one day, be aware of getting burned out. You hear a lot of pastors, you know, getting burned out and stepping away from ministry. And ever since he showed me that, it's just not feared me, but it's just something you, you know, you got to, you know, watch out for, you know. And he's like, you know, Connor, like, if that starts to happen, you know, you go to that one person, you know, that you go to that mentor, whoever that is, and talk to. You know, he showed me that, and I was like, I never want to get burned out, you know. And, like, the stuff he was showing me, I was like, man, I could see why, you know. And it was pulling him away from his family life. Oh, yeah, I've been there. I mean, I've been on burnout before. Yeah. Uh, ain't no doubt. But I don't, and here's the why burnout, I think, is so dangerous, Connor, is because we see it as being virtuous many times. Um, we'll get a pat on the back because we're just burning the candle at both ends. Like, man, look, he's just such a hard worker. You know, he's a go-getter and all that. And you're getting pat, pats on the back, which is encouraging you, but it's it can also, if if you don't take it in the right sense, it can it can push you, I think, to burnout. And and that's what happened to me. I mean, I, I've been burned out before. And it's it's hard to explain, but it's it's hard to recover from burnout. It really is. It takes a long time. It takes more than a week of vacation. Oh, absolutely. Why, absolutely. why is that? Yeah. Well, because here's the thing. Like, like let's if, you, if you're on the edge of burnout, man, it just, like even if you go on a vacation, your mind doesn't rest. So your mind's still on your ministry, on your people, on everything you got to do when you get back. It's because you, you haven't taken enough uh, downtime. Um, I think a sabbatical is good for a pastor uh, at least every year where even – you know, if you get along with, I know a lot of older pastors, they, they just go and they just get along with God. They, you know, maybe go out to rent a cabin and just them and their Bible and spend some time with God alone. And, and it kind of recharges them. Or sometimes it'll just be them and this, their spouse or something uh, along those lines. But the problem with burnout is just that I think it rewires you to think that I've always got to be there. There's always something to do. And that's true. There's always going to be something to do. But when you when you go through burnout, your mind kind of gets rewired as where I, I got to accomplish this task. There's always a task to accomplish. And that's what your goal is in ministry is to keep accomplishing tasks. The problem is the tasks never run out. And so if the tasks never run, you just but you push will yourself, burn out. Right. But you just push yourself further to burnout. Well, I think the key too is is mine, even finding those mini sabbaticals. You know, having those opportunities where you can get away and go somewhere where your mind can rest, sure, or go somewhere where you can just focus on God, or you know, having a hobby, having time with your spouse. You know, I know Matt, you like to go hiking, mm-hmm. um, just anything. I, I like to go hunting, fishing. Um, Shane likes to work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but it really I didn't it, I was through with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it really is important to have those times where. You can go and just kind of not shut down, but rest. Sure. You know, rest your mind, rest your soul. And I think, hopefully, it doesn't need to be said explicitly, but let's do it anyway. Uh, that's true whether you're in ministry or not. Absolutely. Sure. That's true for every Christian. Uh, and one of the greatest encouragements to remind ourselves that we all need time to rest, we all need time away from one another, 
is that the perfect man, Jesus of Nazareth, did the exact same thing. He often. On, on a regular basis, often, yeah. went away to himself to pray, to be away from the crowds. Sometimes he brought all the disciples with him. Sometimes he just brought three. And sometimes he was by himself completely. Rest, if, if the perfect man needs rest, then everybody else who's imperfect definitely needs rest from time right. to time. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the big takeaways as we kind of end this segment on mentorship is somebody gave me this advice one time, and I believe it's so helpful, is to always have a hand up. In other words, always have somebody that's ahead of you, older than you, wiser than you, more experienced than you, that's mentoring you, and always have a hand down. Always be mentoring somebody that's below you. Well, that's, that's true whether you're a pastor, a school teacher, or you work at a gas station or a hotel, whatever you do. I think that can be true in our Christian life. We always want to be looking towards somebody that's helping us and then also reaching a hand down to help others. That's going to wrap up our deep dive for this week. We'll be back in just a second. finish the second chapter of Philippians. And Paul has just said, hey, look, I want to send Timothy to you. I can't wait to do that. I actually want to get there myself. But for now, I'm sending Epaphroditus, who actually is the person that delivered the letter that we are reading to the church. And so we'll look similarly about Epaphroditus and the things that we can learn about his character and his relationship with Paul, and more importantly, maybe his relationship with the church there at Philippi. What are some things you guys picked up about Epaphroditus? He was definitely very well liked by the church as well as by um, Paul. I mean, he was just, he was very well thought of. He had a good reputation. I mean, that definitely stands out in the uh, in the text. But I think one thing that kind of stands out to me is Epaphroditus was on the verge of being upset because he thought the people in Philippi were going to be upset when they heard about his sickness. And so he was actually, his mind was more for their care than his own. And he was on the verge of death. And so, you know, he's, he feels bad that y'all feel bad sort of thing, you know? I believe the words we see here in verse 25 really give us a good understanding about how Paul viewed him. He calls him my brother, indicating his true Christian nature, a co-worker and a fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister in need. So I mean I think even that description in and of itself shows us the high value that Paul placed on who Epaphroditus was. Yeah, he was a man of obvious devotion, you know, faithfulness and self-sacrifice. Um, he put the interests of others, you know, before himself. I also find it remarkable Epaphroditus's um, view on ministry, or at least Paul's. I think it's more maybe Paul's view on ministry, but we don't read about anything that Epaphroditus did that was extraordinary or miraculous. Mm -hmm. Everything he did was mundane and ordinary. And Paul um, said, you know, this is the work of Christ. And so Epaphroditus, he, a lot of times we think of uh, maybe ministry as, you know, you, you got to be able to preach or you got to be able to sing or you got to be able to, you know, you got to have some sort of special gift. But, but as Paul highlights here that all we do is for the glory of Christ. 
And even if it's ordinary, even if it's mundane, or, or even if it's, that's our view of it, because I don't think that's his view of it, because, I mean, he, he brought an offering. We know that. He cared, he cared for Paul, intended to his needs, and um, he likewise probably did the same thing at his church in um, Philippi. So I think whenever we are serving in a church, even though we think, when this is just ordinary, I'm just greeting people, or, or I'm just making coffee, or you know, I'm just um, ushering, or you know, I'm just running the sound. We think of it maybe as ordinary, but man, that's the work of Christ. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's the work of spreading um, the gospel because because Paul. Uh, incorporates all that together because Paul's thing was like, I, I can't do what I do unless you're doing what you're doing. Right. And so um, I think we, we need to, I think this helps us at least to change our view on what we consider ordinary. And, and a lot of times when we see it as ordinary, maybe we think it's, it's non-essential. Right. But it, what everybody does is essential when they're working for the glory of Christ. Yeah, I mean, the rising of the sun is by definition ordinary. It happens every day. But without it, you have no life whatsoever. That's the way the Lord has uh, designed the cosmos, so to speak. It's much like that. Most of the ordinary, mundane, boring, everyday stuff is how God changes us and makes us more like Christ. We love the extraordinary stuff. And look, there's times for the extraordinary it's great. Those things are good and valuable, too. Um, but to ignore the ordinary, you really get up on a lot of ground. Uh, we sing, and we mentioned it several podcasts ago, uh, Pastor Shane did, we sing a song called We Labor Unto Glory. And that song is talking about this idea that all of life, whatever we do, whether we're flipping burgers, we're a, a lawyer, we're a pastor, we're a stay-at-home mother, all of life is an opportunity to witness the glory of God and to work for the glory of the kingdom. Sure. And I do think it speaks highly of the fact that he works through his sickness, that he serves mm-hmm. others um, in what is even a difficult situation for him. And in many ways, it's the same thing we talked about with Timothy. It's a self-sacrificing service of the gospel. I think it's, it's interesting also the, how he, the words that he uses to describe Epaphroditus. He's my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. I think those are very descriptive terms. Um, in other words, whenever he's and, and that that could be something that you could, as we talked about earlier, that you could say, well, this is kind of prescriptive in, in a text that is um, largely descriptive. Um, I mean, because you could talk about those terms and what those terms would have meant when Paul uses them. Because I don't think he is, unless I'm wrong, I don't think he's using them flippantly. I think he's using them on purpose. And so I think those. Those terms could be could be um, looked at deeper. I also think it's interesting uh, in verse twenty eight. Uh, For this reason, I am very eager to send him, so that you may rejoice again. That he cares about them, seeing one that Epaphroditus is all right, and him being reunited to them and with them uh, again. We see again. Uh, we talk about how closely Paul felt towards the church there at Philippi, and we see that modeled to a smaller degree, in Epaphroditus himself. The church loved him greatly. He loved them greatly, and they're going to be able to get together again and to rejoice and to be happy. And We should care about one another's um, happiness. We should care about one another being able to rejoice in times of sure. uh, in times where we need to rejoice. One thing Dr. Pickerelli pulls out 
here, and, and this ties into some things that you said as well, Shane, about the ordinariness. Three times in this chapter, the word for service used is a word that ties back to the idea of a priest serving God. Sure. But it's all used in the, the context of an everyday work, everyday kind of service. And Dr. Pickerley really pulls this out and says, look, I think we can view the everyday task that we do for the kingdom as a service to God, almost as if a priest were serving in the temple. In fact, he says this, um, he's actually quoting Voss here. He says, by extension or application, there is no reason why our daily work should not be viewed as a sacrifice to God. If it is, it will be rendered with a far different spirit of enthusiasm than is usually the case. And of course, it cannot be done in a mediocre fashion. A new standard of excellence will categorize work that is done for the glory of God. And so when we begin to view these everyday tasks that we do for the kingdom as a service to God, then he's saying, you know, it gives us a special enthusiasm, but it also calls us to a higher standard of serving, a higher standard of loving. So whether I'm singing on the worship team or I'm serving cafe here or whatever, I'm being a part of the ministry here. If I view that as a service towards God, then it calls me to do it joyfully, willingly, and to do it well. Yeah, because, well, Paul, even um, here early in, what's it, verse 25, 26, somewhere around there, um, he says that um, he's my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. He says, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Um, that kind of goes with what you're saying. When he uses the word minister, it's almost a priestly position, even though he's doing ordinary um, tasks, nothing necessarily extraordinary, but he says he's a minister to my need. Not that he's just ministering to my needs, because there, there's a difference if, in adding that ing. And much of ministry looks like mundane tasks, mm-hmm. but when we do it for the right purpose, the right reason, for the glory of God, it takes on so much more meaning and purpose. That's going to be a wrap on week five of the Wordsmith podcast. No matter where you listen to your podcast, Apple, Google, Spotify, like, subscribe, help get the word out. And more importantly than anything, it's our prayer that these discussions, this time in the Word, helps you grow in your relationship with Christ.